Well, good morning, everyone. We are in week number two of this series on the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are the very first words of Jesus' very first recorded sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, arguably the most famous sermon in all of history. And we are doing this series on the Beatitudes because here in them, as much as any place in all the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels, it's here that Jesus tells us what the good life is, what the blessed life or the best life, what the happiest life is, what life lived under the dominion and the reign of Jesus Christ looks like. So the Beatitudes matter because here Jesus tells us what you and I as followers of Christ are to look like, what we're to be like. Now there's eight of them. But of these eight Beatitudes, I want you to understand they're not eight descriptions of eight different types of people. Rather, these are eight qualities or characteristics, if you will, of people who are entering and who have entered Jesus' kingdom. People who are living for King Jesus. Now we talked today about the Obama administration, before that the Bush-Clinton administration. Here in the Beatitudes, Jesus describes what people who serve in his administration are like. Jesus' kingdom is Jesus' administration. Now that's the good news. The bad news is that what Jesus Christ says in these Beatitudes is so crazy, uh, so shocking, so counterintuitive and countercultural that we today tend to dismiss these words. And if we don't dismiss them, uh, we tend to water them down so they don't really mean anything. And nowhere, frankly, I think nowhere is that more apparent than on our beatitude today. Today we're looking at the second beatitude. And let me just speak personally and honestly for a moment. I have struggled as much with this one beatitude today, this one statement of Jesus, as I have with any of the statements in Jesus' entire ministry. There were a couple, not just one, but a couple nights this week where I came home and, and said to Rhonda, Rhonda, I have no idea what I'm going to say on Sunday. I have no idea how to approach this. As a matter of fact, you might want to stay home. It's really going to be embarrassing. <laughs> and then I had this thought, and I, I said this to Rhonda on Wednesday or Thursday night, one of the nights. I was lamenting this, and I thought, why in the world didn't I have Lon preach this passage? Why am I doing it? But here we are, so grab your Bibles or turn on your Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, and the second beatitude is found in verse 4, but because it's just one sentence, I want to back up, and we'll read the first two beatitudes um, together. This is page 958 in the Bibles in front of you. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. We'll start in verse 3. Jesus is speaking and he's teaching and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, heaven. Lon looked at this beatitude last week. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Now here it is. And this has been giving me fits for days. And so what I want to do as I've prayed and as I've studied and as I've thought, I want to do three things with this passage. First of all, I want to look at what Jesus is saying. Then I want to look, secondly, at what keeps us from it. What keeps us from what Jesus is saying. And then third, why it matters. So first, Jesus is not, I repeat, Jesus is not saying, happy are those who are unhappy, okay? He is not saying it's a virtue to be miserable, as if God is some sort of cosmic killjoy. You having fun, got to stamp that out. Nothing could be further from the truth. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that God gives us all things to enjoy. And over and over in the New Testament, Paul, others say, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord uh, always. So Jesus here, when he says, blessed are, are those who mourn, uh, Jesus is not calling us to wallow in self-pity or, or, or grief or, or guilt or hopelessness. Jesus is not saying perpetual sorrow and misery and depression is a virtue. Jesus is not calling us to walk through life backwards, holding tightly to our regrets, our disappointments. Too many of us do that. And I need to say, in light of our culture today, Jesus is not endorsing self-injury, cutting, suicide. So what is our Lord saying? Let's back up. In verse 3, with the first beatitude, Jesus has just said, blessed are the poor in spirit. To be poor is to not have what it takes. You don't have what it takes. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that you don't have what it takes spiritually. As Lon said uh, last week, you recognize you're, you're a clod. Uh, that you're insufficient for life before God. Now, some have said, I have found this helpful, that the first three Beatitudes, and I think you're going to appreciate this, uh, the first three Beatitudes um, help us look at our problems. They show us how to look at your problems. And the human experience, life is full of problems. But kingdom people, Jesus people, uh, people who are serving, living in Jesus' administration, approach problems radically differently than those that aren't, than others. So, for example, to be poor in spirit means you recognize your problems are beyond you. Beyond you. And Jesus, with this first beatitude, says this is where you start. You've got to start here. Alcoholics Anonymous echoes this. When AA tells us, if you're ever going to break the bondage of addiction, you've got to start with the first of the 12 steps. And the first step is to admit you are powerless. You're, you're powerless. In other words, your problems are beyond you. In other words, you're poor in spirit, to use Jesus' words. Now, I, I don't need to tell you, do I, that Jesus didn't get that from AA? <laughs> but that AA got that from Jesus, right? 
So that's the first beatitude. We come to the second beatitude relative problem to our problems. Uh, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. In other words, it takes it a step further. So you recognize your problems are beyond you, but you also recognize your problems are due to sin. And mourning is the personal grief over sin. I'll come back to that. And third, and I'll talk about this um, uh, next week, is when Jesus says, uh, blessed are the meek, uh, you understand that your biggest problem is you. My problems are beyond me. My problems are due to sin. My biggest problem is me. Now, all of us, every single one of us know that the world is full of problems. And Jesus is, is teaching Christians, those of us that follow Jesus Christ, um, to respond uh, by saying, you know, by, by understanding that the problem with the world, the problem with the universe isn't a lack of education, it isn't economic, it isn't uh, uh, political. Uh, the problem with the world is sin starting with me. Now, all this to say, this second beatitude, in this second beatitude, Jesus is not talking about mourning in general. He is not saying happy are the unhappy. The more you mourn, the better. The more blessed you'll be. Jesus is talking about mourning sin. We're poor in spirit, we mourn in spirit. Mourning sin is the, the mourning here is this visceral emotional reaction to the realization that behind and underneath all our problems is a far deeper, far more sinister problem of sin. And the world doesn't get that. <clears throat> And you do, and you hate it, you mourn it. Uh, Jesus is not saying <clears throat> it's good to be paralyzed by sin. What Jesus is saying is, blessed are those who mourn sin, their sin, other sin. So for example, you... You see the news on the internet, on the web, or you see it in uh, the paper or in TV, and you read about a terrorist strike that has just taken out 50 people, another village, or it's a rape, or it's a murder, or it's this gross injustice, um, a, a, a battle that's just broken out here in a certain part of the world, and you see that, and as a follower of Jesus Christ, you mourn that, and that mourning leads you to pray, oh God, grant grace. And when you see an issue in your life, problems in your life, you understand that underneath that is this thing called sin. And you hate it and you mourn it and that leads you to repent. I'll line that out in a minute. Now when it comes to um, looking at the world around us, uh, mourning for others, for the horrible things that are uh, um, falling down, taking place in the world, uh, the sinful fall and world we live in, I want you to listen to these words of um, uh, Professor Don Carson. He says this, a Christian 
is a realist. She knows that death is real and must be faced. She knows that God is real and will be known by everyone either as savior or judge. She knows that sin is real and it is unspeakably ugly and black in light of God's purity. She knows that God's revelation is there and that the alternatives it presents will in fact come to pass. Life or death, pardon or condemnation, heaven or hell. These are the realities which will not go away. The man who lives in light of them and rightly assesses himself and his world in light of them <clears throat> cannot but mourn. He mourns for the sins and the blasphemies of his nation, of the nations. He, he mourns for the lost, the least reached. He mourns over the greed and the cynicism, the lack of integrity, the injustice, the hate. He mourns that there are so few mourners. In other words, what Jesus is saying is you and I as followers of Christ, people that live under his administration, we don't just read the headlines, we mourn them. And we mourn the sin underneath them, behind them. But this morning, that's not what I want to focus on. This morning, I want to go a different direction. Because this morning, I want to talk about you mourning you. You mourning your sin. Because uh, 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 according to Jesus, when you put these first two, now we're talking just the first two beatitudes together, what Jesus means is you understand you are not merely powerless, AA, but you are also plagued, sin. Your problems are beyond you, and your problems are due to sin, your sin. Obviously, that's an oversimplification, and we're impacted by the sin of others, but for, I want to talk about your sin. You understand that you are both um, poor in spirit and you are rich in sin. Uh, so you are poor in spirit and you mourn in spirit. You mourn spiritually and you own it. Now if you own it, if you really do mourn, you'll do two things. And here what I'm going to start to say is one of the reasons this passage seems so odd, this statement seems so odd and so foreign to us is because we don't get it and we don't hear Jesus. But if you really are a person that mourns, if you have this emotional reaction to your sin, there's going to be two things that are going to characterize your life as a follower of Christ. And the first is you own your stuff. What I'm saying is you regularly confess sin. Now, men, not your wife's sin, your sin, okay? <laughs> uh, confession is, a, is a, just a regular part of your life. Um, a, as a matter of fact, uh, I, I'll say it as strongly as I possibly can. There really is no mourning, uh, uh, according to what Jesus is saying, if there is no confession, ongoing confession in your life. You will never mourn sin. You will never heed what Jesus is saying if you aren't a person that regularly confesses sin. And then how does that surface? Well, the people around you, the people <clears throat> that are closest to you, 
Well, here you say things like, man, I really blew it. Man, I'm, I'm so sorry. Man, I sinned against you. Uh, will you forgive me? Uh, I, I regret. I, I say this to Rhonda a lot, man. Uh, I, I regret having said that. I'm really sorry. And you confess. You confess it to God. You confess it to others because you mourn it. You own it. You see it. Now let me show you this in the life of arguably one of the greatest men that has ever lived. One of the most talented men. One of the most godly men that has ever lived. King David. So let's go back. I'll put this on the overhead. But you can turn to Psalm 32. Now when we were in this series on David... Uh, just a little bit ago, we looked at David's confession of sin in Psalm 51. It's found in Psalm 51 here in Psalm 32. And what I want to do is I want to read the um, second and the third, or the third and the fourth verse, and then we'll come to the fifth. So look what David says, Psalm 32, verse 3. He says, when I was silent, when I didn't confess my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Now here in these two verses, David uh, amazingly, well actually in the whole psalm, records for everyone, all of history, his fall, his failure, his sin. He confesses it. And what he's doing in the two verses I just read is he's describing the, the, the year after his adultery and murder, before he confesses, before he comes clean. So David in verses 3 and 4 isn't mourning his sin, he's describing the effects of ignoring his sin. Now when Jesus in the Beatitude talks about mourning sin, he's talking about bringing it to the light. He's talking about owning it. He's talking about confessing it. He's talking about not pretending. And that's exactly what David describes in the next verse. Look at verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. To mourn is to acknowledge. To acknowledge is to mourn. Mourning is the emotional counterpart. It's the other side of the coin uh, 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 of acknowledging. And David continues in, in verse 5, And I did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This is a man that knew confession. You want to be like David? I mean, we want to experience the life David experienced, the talents, all of that. Man, there was something at the center of his life where David understood his problems were beyond him and his problems were due to his sin and he confessed it. Now, yeah, confession is hard. I mean, think about it for David. David was a public figure. I mean, the health of the nation, the vitality of the nation was at, at stake. And one of the things that keeps us from uh, confession is the consequences. Our, our reputation getting damaged, other people getting hurt. David said nuts to all that. And he confesses and then he records it for all time. Now, what is confession? Well, there's a lot of different ways to describe confession. One of the ways I like to describe it is confession is taking the garbage out. 
And we just keep taking the garbage out. The garbage stinks, left unattended, it'll stink really bad. But Jesus is saying you can't mourn it if you don't own it and if you don't take it out. And the primary reason you and I now hear me, especially you in the 20s, 20-something, uh, one of the, the reasons uh, we don't take our garbage out is because we base our esteem and our significance on our performance, on our, our, our record, instead of God's grace. Uh, so we ignore our sin because, frankly, it's too painful. And it's all about me and, and my stuff and what I do. But leaning into Jesus and his matchless grace and the wonder of the forgiveness that he offers us through dying in our place for our sin frees us to take the garbage out because it's not about me, it's about Jesus and what he has done. So we confess. Now there's another aspect of mourning, a second, and that is we turn from it. To mourn sin is to turn from it. You, uh, the biblical word is you repent. Uh, you turn away. We repent of little things. We repent of the big things. But our problem with turning away, our problem with the biblical concept of repentance, and Jesus began his ministry by saying repent. Uh, our problem with it, especially when it comes to big things, is that we have reduced repentance to self-pity. And we confuse uh, repentance for self-pity. We substitute it. Uh, what is self-pity? Well, self-pity is hating getting caught. It's hating the situation you're in and not doing anything about it. Well, when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, Jesus isn't talking about a lifestyle that just reacts to me emotionally and doesn't do anything about it. Jesus is talking about repentance. You mourn and it leads to repentance. You turn away and you make a change. Uh, repentance is turning from the sin. It's different than self-pity. It's turning to God. It's deciding, I've got to change. And you know what? My problems are beyond me, so I'm going to grab a friend or two, and I'm going, to, you know, I'm going to say, man, guys, I have really blown it, and I continue to blow it in this area, and I need you to check in with me. I need you to call me. I need to be honest with you. A mourning is the emotional reaction, the emotion that attends confession and repentance. It sustains confession and repentance. And it's the fruit of confession and repentance. It's the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, waking up, coming to his senses, and going back home and saying to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you, and I'm home. I own it. Confession and repentance. I mourn it. All right, now we got to take this a step further, and we got to go to my second point. And let me set it up this way. Honestly, easy to talk about, hard to do. And, and one of the reasons Jesus' words, blessed are those that mourn, seem so odd to us 
today is because there's some things in our lives that block the experience that Jesus is longing for. So I want to give you quickly three blockers that keep us from the cathartic biblical experience of mourning. Number one, we blame others. We blame others for our stuff. Now, if you have your Bibles open, just skip down a couple paragraphs to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to pick it up in verse 27. I'll put these four verses up on the screen. Look at what Jesus has to say. Notice how strong he is. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. That's Old Testament, it's one of the Ten Commandments. But I tell you that anyone that looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then now notice verse 29. And Jesus says, and if you do, it's her fault. Or, or it's a stress in your life. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand, and Jesus is here speaking metaphorically, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Now Jesus uses these figures, these strong figures, because he wants to make a strong point. Lost adultery is wrong. But do you see what he's doing? Do you see the repetition of the word you uh, and sin, your sin? Jesus doesn't allow you men to blame the woman. Or to blame your job or to blame the, uh, maybe you're single, your singleness or you're in a, a, a difficult marriage, your, your difficult marriage, your wife isn't meeting your needs or, or whatever. Jesus says it's you, it's your sin. And Jesus says your problem in this area isn't because of your low self-esteem or because you're lonely or because you're stressed or because you got a demanding uh, guy, a guy at work that happens to be your boss. It's you. It's your heart. <laughs> Jesus says if your right eye, your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Uh, my father died when I was 13. My dad was an alcoholic his entire adult life. And as I look back on those years, and my dad was gone a lot, I never once had a single sustained conversation with my father. Never won. It never happened. It never happened. Now, like all of us, I, I, I've got stuff in my life. I've got sin in my life. I, I, I get angry. I'm, I, I'm impatient. There's pride. There's fear. There's insecurity. Sometimes uh, I don't love the things I should love. I don't hate the things I, 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 I should hate. I do not mourn my sin enough but I have learned along the way that I can't blame my father 
Now, yeah, there's pain, there's loss, but I do no one, no one, starting with myself, and, and, and any favors. If I don't know, own my actions and my reactions, admit it and admit it as my sin. Your eye, your hand, your sin. Jesus says it's not the woman. It's not your marriage. It's you. And one of the reasons Jesus' statement, blessed are those that are mourned, seems so odd, seems so difficult, and one of the reasons we trivialize this in, in our spiritual lives, and one of the reasons we don't mourn our sin is because we blame others. And often unconsciously. Now men, let me tell you what your wife is looking for. Your wife doesn't want you to focus on her stuff. She wants you to focus on yours. And the more you admit that what you have done in a particular situation has harmed her and you, 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 you deeply, deeply regret that and you communicate how badly you feel, you know what happens? The more safe she feels to respond to you. You see, your attention... Uh, to your weaknesses, your sin, your pathology, and we all have it, uh, breaks the logjam. And, and frankly, I've done enough marriage counseling over 30 years to know there's no other way. No other way. Let me go on the second blocker. The, the second reason this morning thing seems so weird to us is that you and I have this tendency to live in denial. We live in, we live in denial. We see the sin in others. We don't see it in ourselves. Now, we all have issues. We all have uh, struggles. Unconsciously, um, we kind of believe. We don't say it, but we believe we are sinner. Uh, or we, I should say we know we are sinners, but we don't believe in sin today. Now, others see it in our lives, and, and we know there's something going on uh, uh, underneath. I mean, we feel it, but the problem is we don't believe it. And so we live in denial. We live in denial because the truth is too painful. And as a result, today, most humans have no rational explanation for their problems. None. On this point, Paul Tripp, one of my favorite authors, says there are only two responses to sin. Personal sin, your sin. One is that you gladly confess it. You gladly confess, admit, acknowledge, verbalize that what you've done is sin, and, and you mourn it. You, you, you mourn it. But you aren't suffocated by it. You're not paralyzed by it because you place yourself under the ceaseless forgiving grace of God in Jesus Christ. So you see it, you confess it, you turn from it, you mourn it, but you move on. Because you live in light of God's grace. 
That's the first response to personal sin. The, the second response, far more typical, is you erect some sort of system of self-justification or rationalization or, or denial that um, enables you to make what God says is wrong somehow palatable to your conscience. And, and apart from the immediate problem of denial and the pain your denial causes other people, the long-term problem is that when you deny your sin, you'll never lean into God's grace because you don't need it, you think. The grace, this grace of God in Jesus Christ that is your only hope in life and in death. So look how 1 John addresses this. 1 John chapter 1. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. What the word of God is saying is stop living in denial. Don't do it. Third blocker. Third reason that Jesus' words seem just kind of weird to us is that we all have this need, this insane need to be in control. You have it, I have it. And if there's one thing I wish for you students, I'm high school, college students, you 20-somethings, you, you people in your early 30s, you're just kind of starting out, you're, you're ramping up. And the one thing I wish for you is that you would understand at the core of your being that you thinking that you are in control is an illusion. That you thinking that you are the king or the queen of your own life, it's an illusion. And the one thing I wish for you is that you would understand that Jesus alone is king and that Jesus alone is in control and that Jesus, his agenda, his administration is the ultimate source of the richest, the best, the most blessed, the happiest life on this planet. And boy, will you spare yourself a whole lot of pain in pursuing dead-end streets starving your soul. But this issue of control, this issue of control is hard. Uh, I've talked about my precious, adorable three-year-old granddaughter. She, a little Eliza, I mean, her parents are missionaries. She's just, you know, this big. She's just really little. She loves telling adults, 50, 60 years her senior, what to do where to sit, where to go, what to do. Grandpa, you sit here, and Grandpa, you build this tower with these blocks. Oh, fine, Eliza, come on over and help me. No, Grandpa, I'm going to sit over here, and I'm going to watch. <laughs> she loves telling me what to do. And you know what the great thing about being a grandfather is? It's not my problem. <laughs> it's Shannon and Luke's. They can deal with it. You see, the essence of sin is, is insisting that you have to always be in control. You always have to be in charge. You're going to live your life uh, your own way, and you can walk across the freeway on your own. 
and you're only three. And until you're willing to admit that I am not in charge, it's not my agenda, and you grab God's hand, because you understand my problems are beyond me and my problems are ultimately due to sin, you will never mourn. You will never ever mourn sin. You won't confess it, and you won't turn from it. Uh, because you blame others, you live in denial, or you, you live in this delusion that you're in charge. So this brings me to the end. Why does mourning sin matter so much? Look at the verse. Because Jesus says it's the key to experiencing comfort. The comfort of God's grace, the comfort of God's presence. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The extent to which uh, you see your sin, you own it, you confess it, you repent of it, you, you mourn it, will be the extent to which you experience God's forgiving, uh, restoring, resurrecting uh, uh, grace. Because why? Because your mourning will drive you to grace. You have no other way. And you will flourish because life isn't up to you and your performance and your appearance and your success. It's up to what Je it's, it's all about what Jesus has already done for you. And you let that cleansing, forgiving, righteous grace just wash over you and continually restore you. And the comfort here that Jesus is talking about is the comfort from knowing that you don't pay for your sins because Jesus did. And the one who paid for your sin loves to transform you and change you and to deliver you from your sin. He is a rescuer, a savior. And the crazy thing, the crazy thing about this odd statement that has just been um, giving me fits all week is that Jesus is telling us he wants to comfort you. He promises to comfort you by exposing your need for you to expose your sin. Think about that. The key to overcoming guilt, anger, hopelessness, uh, despair, isn't blaming your sin on other people, your father, uh, denying it, trying to take charge of your life. Uh, the key is coming to Jesus. Uh, mourning what you've done and celebrating the greater work that he has done in dying on the cross in your place for your sin. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're all mourners. Paul tells us to mourn with those who mourn. And there's a place for coming alongside people who are grieving, and we will grieve ourselves, and to mourn with them. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about looking our sin in the face and hating it.
and dealing with it. And God, this kind of mourning, we're, we're not very good at. And we need your grace, we need your mercy. And would you come and would you visit us for Jesus' sake? Amen.